What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's November 1995 in Jumet, Belgium. Two men and a woman are being held and interrogated about a stolen van. The van was supposed to have been hidden to later be sold, but the captors believe they have been betrayed. But the woman is not bound and manages to escape while the two captors are searching for evidence. She goes to a neighbor and calls the police. This doesn't bode well for either of the captors. One of them has been in trouble with the law before and can't afford to be caught again. So he decides the best move is to take care of the other one. He drugs his accomplice and buries him alive. In December, the second captor is recognized and arrested. Police search his home, but Marc Dutroux has more to hide than just stolen vehicles. Underneath his property is a scene straight out of a horror movie. Dutroux constructed a cell beneath his house in Charlois, which was seven feet long, three feet wide, and approximately five feet high, hidden behind a very strong, elaborate door, which was then covered with concrete and was hidden in his basement. He put these two eight-year-old girls into the cell and kept them there for the next three months. But the police don't find any of these things. Instead, Dutroux is sent to prison for the car theft. Meanwhile, the girls are still in the basement. Dutroux had told her to feed their large German shepherd dog. Look after him. He neglected to tell Michelle, apparently, to feed the two eight-year-olds in the dungeon. It's a fatal mistake. The two girls die. And it would take police years to discover the hidden cells, sex tapes, and hundreds of other crimes that Dutroux and a series of accomplices had committed over a short period of time, including the torture and murder of children. Some of them starved to death, others were buried alive. These are the, some of the most horrendous crimes that, that any criminologist will ever come across. This is what makes a killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Marc Dutroux. Marc Dutroux was born in Ixelles on November 6, 1956. He was the oldest of five children. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel said the family moved around a lot. His parents were teachers and at one point emigrated to the Belgian Congo, where they taught. But when the crisis erupted in that country, they brought Dutroux back to Belgium in 1960. His parents eventually separated in 1971. Dutroux, then 15, stayed with his mother. Both parents were confrontational, says forensic psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley. 
We know that his mother was incredibly dominant, his father was very aggressive. So I think it was quite a hostile environment to, to grow up in. And I think those attachments or lack of attachments with his parents in those early years did play quite a, a role in, in the person he became. As a young adult, Dutroux trained as an electrician, but he was still often unemployed. At age 20, he married and had two children, but the marriage was not a happy one. By 1983, Dutroux had begun an affair with a school teacher named Michelle Martin. Martin would eventually become Dutroux's partner in life and crime. The psychiatrists suggest that Martin and Dutroux are a classic example of folie de, that one egged the other on and that therefore the sum of the two of them was even more dangerous than one alone. Dutroux soon began a long and diverse criminal history. It included car thefts, muggings, and drug dealings. Dutroux had a lot of contact with the police. He stepped up from car theft into a rather grand form of car theft, which involved shipping quite expensive luxury cars, which he'd stolen in Belgium, out of the country into Czechoslovakia and Hungary. Dutroux drew a large criminal network for his car stealing, including an accomplice named Bernard Weinstein. He was also allegedly turning a large profit. Dutroux owned seven properties in and around the city of Charleroi, 45 miles south of Brussels. But the severity of Dutroux's crimes soon escalated to show his true nature. Mark Dutroux was a predator who selected his prey very carefully. He wanted to choose people who were easy to, to target in the first place, easy to abduct, but also easy to manipulate once he had them under his control. So he would go for the most vulnerable victims that, that he could find that fulfilled his desires. In 1989, he was found guilty of the abduction and rape of five young girls one of whom was just 11 years old. Martine, who was now Dutroux's wife, was found to be complicit in the abductions. She and Dutroux both served time. I think when we look at the relationship between Dutroux and his wife, who was implicated in, in many of his crimes, it is quite interesting. Um, it, it's quite possible that, that, that some people see her as, as just another one of his victims, somebody else who was manipulated and, and coerced by him. Um, and when we look at Mark Dutroux and his behaviour, he is incredibly charming at times and he can be very persuasive. Um, so it, it wouldn't surprise me if he'd set out with the intention of recruiting somebody to, to help him in his crimes. And this is somebody who, who fell for his charms and, and went along with it. Dutroux was given a 13-year sentence, but incredibly, he was released on parole after serving only three years. I find that extraordinary. You can be convicted of the rape and abduction of five girls, the youngest of which is 11, and you can walk out of jail after three years of a 13-and-a-half-year sentence? It was the first time of many that Dutroux was seemingly allowed to get away with his crimes. Georges Huercano is a Belgian investigative journalist who has spent over 10 years reporting on the Dutroux case. 
Dutroux is an expert manipulator. He made everyone cry. He made everybody believe that his family had abandoned him. As an exemplary prisoner, he came out very quickly. The prisons are overpopulated, and for authorities, he was nothing more than a car thief. But he was definitely much more than a car thief. Dutroux was about to begin a series of heinous and sordid crimes, and his victims were children. On June 24, 1995, two eight-year-old girls, Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo, were out on a walk. They were in the town of Grace Hollange, just 55 miles east of Charleroi, when the girls disappeared without a trace. As there was no ransom request, no information about whether they had been kidnapped, probably they had been abducted by a predator, a paedophile, who, as in most cases, killed his victims to silence them. Detroux and Martine had abducted the girls. And beneath one of their Charleroi homes was a place of nightmares. Dutroux constructed a cell beneath his house in Charleroi, which was seven feet long, three feet wide, and approximately five feet high, hidden behind a very strong, elaborate door, which was then covered with concrete and was hidden in his basement. He put these two eight-year-old girls Lejeune and Rousseau, into the cell and kept them there for the next three months. But who could imagine that a man was going to take away the girls to keep them alive, locked alive inside a cellar? Nobody. For two months, Julie and Melissa remained locked up in Dutroux's dungeon in two cages. They were tortured and sexually abused by Dutroux. And says investigative journalist Douglas DeConnick, Dutroux made pornographic tapes for his own personal collection. There was a video, a home video made by Mark Dutroux, um, where he was filming the developments in the works in his, his child cage. The two girls proved to not be enough for him. Two months later, two more girls disappeared. On August 23rd, on Belgium's northeast coast, Best friends, 17-year-old Anne Marshall and 19-year-old Effie Lambrex, were on a camping trip. Neither girl returned home. Effie's father, Jean, was alarmed. We immediately had the feeling that something was wrong because she was always open about things. She always said where she was going and who she had seen. She would never not tell anyone and just stay away. That was not what Effia would do. The last reported sighting of Anne and Effia was at midnight in the central train station in northern Belgium. Initially, the police had dismissed John's concerns. They did not draw up a report. They said they must have gone out. They'll return soon. But during those first days, nothing was done. And afterwards, their friends contacted us. And we went to see the police at Hasselt. They did respond, 
and at that stage, the police at the coast started investigating. The police then asked questions. If she was, um, you know, if perhaps she was addicted to drugs or something. My response was that Effia did not approve of those things. She was against it. I did not believe anything like that. But anyway, you start doubting, or sometimes you start wondering, did I miss something? While Jean tried the police, Anne Marshall's father, Paul, sought help from investigative journalist Douglas DeConnick. I remember very well that Paul Marshall uh, came into to the office. He pleaded, please, please put a picture of my, my daughter on your front page. And I, I think I, we were laughing at him. He said, oh, oh, oh God, this, this poor man, uh, his daughter is, is sure somewhere uh, partying with some friends and she, she will show up in a few days. But Anne and Effia were not out partying. De Troux and accomplice Michel Luliev had abducted the two young women back to the dungeon where they were raped. They were inveigled into the van that Dutroux used for the abductions. Because the dungeon beneath the house was full of the two eight-year-olds, they chained these two girls to a bed in the rest of the house. But there were more horrors in store for Anne and Effia. In September, Dutroux and his accomplice Weinstein drugged the girls, and then a plastic bag was taped around their heads. They were then buried in the back garden of Dutroux's house in Martinelle, alive. It would be months before anyone had any inkling of what happened to them. Meanwhile, Dutroux and his network continued their other crimes. In the same month he killed Effia and Anne, Dutroux ran into a bad deal with a stolen car. Police were tipped off to his involvement and to Weinstein's. Dutroux decided to cut off the weak link himself. Weinstein was drugged with Rohypnol, the same soporific administered to the teenagers. Then he was tortured and buried. But in December, Dutroux was caught and convicted. He served almost four months in prison for car theft. During this time, the police searched his home in Charleroi. They were agonizingly close to finding out Dutroux's darkest secret, says author Jeffrey Wansel. Twice in December 1995, on the 13th and the 19th, police searched the house in Charleroi. One of the most poignant and tragic parts of that search, which included a search of the basement, was that the police failed to identify the dungeon. Even more horrifying, the two policemen who searched the house were accompanied by a locksmith who would help them. The locksmith told the policeman that he heard screams. The policeman said, oh, it must be from outside, and disregarded him. The terrible truth is that it was from the two eight-year-olds hidden in this cell, this dungeon. Police would later face a lot of criticism for failing to provide a thorough investigation. 
Officers had also found several VHS cassette tapes, and they didn't watch them until much later. If they had, says Douglas DeConnick. This was, was essential proof that they were on, 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 the, on the right track. But for some, some strange reason, they did this house search and they didn't exploit the, the information they got from it. The mistakes made by police came at a fatal cost. While Dutroux was in prison, Michel Martin had not taken care of the two girls still in the dungeon. Dutroux had told her to feed their large German shepherd dog. Look after him. He neglected to tell Michel, apparently, to feed the two eight-year-olds in the dungeon. Some say, in defense of uh, Dutroux's wife, that she was so terrified of the whole idea of the dungeon and the fact that uh, they might do something or she wouldn't be able to control them meant that she couldn't go in, and so she therefore allowed them to starve to death. I've always regarded that as an over-benevolent description of what probably happened. But what I do believe is that between them, they allowed these children, eight-year-old girls, to suffer dreadfully, and there is no excuse in my mind for that. By the time Dutroux arrived back home, Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo were dead. The couple buried them on a different property. Dutroux didn't wait long to find a replacement. On May 28, 1996, he kidnapped 12-year-old Sabine Dardenne on her way to school and locked her in his dungeon. For him, his fantasy was to take young girls. He soon realized that Julia and Melissa were sexually too young for him, so he took ones that were a little older. That was Anne and Effia. But he found that they were too difficult to manage because they were older, stronger, more intelligent. There was one that escaped several times. He had to catch her again, and it became unmanageable for him, so he killed them as well. In his crazy and depraved mind, the first ones were too young, the others were too old. He chose in between, so he first took Sabine and then Letitia. On August 9th, he abducted 14-year-old Letitia Delez as she walked home from her local swimming pool. She soon joined Sabine in the underground dungeon. Dutroux both physically and emotionally tortured the girls. Investigative journalist Georges Warcano says that Dutroux told Sabine she was in contact with her parents. She wrote letters to her parents, but obviously he didn't send the letters. He read them. He used what was in the letters to manipulate her, yet she resisted. Despite everything, she did not create that attachment with him. But Letitia's kidnapping would be the first step in Dutroux's dramatic downfall. By accident, it was an, an eyewitness who saw her being bundled into a van on that day and got part of the number plate. The man had seen a suspicious white van driving away from where Letitia was last seen. It was a white Renault traffic with a license plate beginning with the letters FFR. Prosecutor Michel Borlet investigated the lead. Voilà, j'ai un début de plaque sur telle marque de voiture. I had the beginning of a license plate and a make of car to work with. There were 20 names that matched, and the police officer said, Ah, among these 20 names, there is a certain. And he said that with a Flemish accent because he was Flemish. Dutroux, Dutroux. This name sounds familiar. So I asked, Who is this Dutroux? He's a man who lives in Charlois, 
who owns a white van with a licence plate beginning with the letters FFR, who was sentenced in 1989 on multiple abductions and rape charges to 13 years in prison, so he is a high-profile suspect. Dutroux was apparently so high-profile that there was a separate investigation looking into his movements. In the dossier, Borlet found some damning evidence, the testimony of a man who had been approached by Dutroux to help him kidnap girls. He had asked a certain Claude Thiroux from the Charlois region, who is also a fugitive who needed money. He said to him, I'll pay you to help me abduct girls. But this guy was a police informant, so he went and told the gendarmerie. There's a guy named Marc Dutroux who lives there. He offered me money to kidnap children. Investigator Michel and his partner, Jean-Marc Connoret, immediately decided to take action. The team began to plan a synchronized raid on all seven of Marc Dutroux's homes. If they found their man, it would likely lead them to 14-year-old Letitia Delez. And there was a good chance that she could still be alive. But they needed to act fast. On August 13th, over 40 special ops police officers took part in a synchronized raid on all seven of Marc Dutroux's properties. Investigator Michel Borlet awaited news. At about one in the afternoon, I was at the headquarters of the gendarmerie of Charlois at the very moment when Mr. Connorot received the news that in one of the properties in Saint-Lebrousier, Dutroux was found with his wife and the vehicle. This was the time to act, as it seemed that Dutroux was about to change the license plate on the van. Dutroux, his wife Michel Martin, and one of his many accomplices, Michel Luliev, were found and taken in for questioning. Even over several hours of interrogations, all three maintained their innocence. He was consistent in his lies, following each lie by telling another lie. It was a manipulative behavior. But otherwise, he stayed very, very calm. Belgian authorities questioned the three suspects about the kidnapping of Letitia Delez. Lulia denied being with Dutroux on the day in question. So the police had no choice but to release him. But moments after he left the police station, a startling witness account came through. The neighbors of his property in Marcenay saw Marc Dutroux and Lilev return on Friday evening carrying a child covered by a blanket as they returned to his house, to Dutroux's house. Luliev was immediately taken back into custody. And as his accomplice's alibi began to crumble, Dutroux's interrogation also took a drastic turn. Dutroux knows that we had proof that Letitia was in the car. So he says, yes, I was in Batrice, which he denied at the start. I met a young girl, I talked with her, and then she told me she was tired of her parents' stories because there are parts against him and he changes the stories to suit his narrative on the spot. Then, at the same time, Lilev said she was with Dutroux. 
And finally, on Thursday, he ends up telling us, now that all of these parts of the story contradict each other, I will give you the two girls. Devant tous ces éléments-là, qui le contredisent, il dit, je vais vous donner deux filles. That Dutroux had two girls was news to investigators. Dutroux pointed to a poster inside the interrogation room of another missing girl, 12-year-old Sabine Darden. Author Jeffrey Wansel says Dutroux cooperated with the investigators and brought them back to his house. Two days after his arrest, Dutroux took the police to the basement where Sabine and Letitia were found alive. Dutroux led the investigators to his property in Marcinelle. Hidden behind a false wall in the basement was the dungeon where he had been keeping Sabine and Letitia Delez. He pulled down the wardrobe and inside the cage behind was Sabine and Letitia. And then we got this, yeah, at that moment, incredible news that two kidnapped girls had been found alive in the cage of a, a person who had been convicted before for this kind of crimes. It was such a huge thing. All the journalists were on the scene at the time. The news, magazines were there. It is as if there had been a terrorist attack. No one could believe that such a person could exist in Belgium. It was unthinkable. Douglas DeConnick was one of the few journalists who was allowed to enter Dutroux's basement. We had seen pictures, we had been seen images, but being there is, is uh, difficult to describe because it's, it's, it's like constructed to, to, you wouldn't even put a dock in uh, such a small place. This was really the, the, the kind of cage they made to, to, to hide guns from the police. Belgium awoke in shock to the news that a man from Marcinelle had abducted, raped, and tortured young girls over several months. But the families of Sabine Dardenne and Letitia Delez rejoiced that their daughters had been found alive. They are rare occasions when we find the relatives and a policeman or a magistrate has the opportunity to return a child who had been kidnapped in such circumstances alive. It's fantastic, obviously. It is a joy that can be shared with the parents. Investigators were sure that these two girls were not the only ones Dutroux had trapped in his dungeon. Over the next 48 hours, investigators continued to relentlessly question him. They had reason to believe he knew the whereabouts of Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo, who at this point had been missing for almost a year. Police had no idea the girls were long dead. Dutroux, already caught, refused to give up any more information. Dutroux was playing a game with his investigators. He knew that uh, he, he never would get out of prison anymore. He knew that he would be presented as uh, the most famous criminal we've ever had in Belgium. And he wanted to exploit that situation. He had to be flattered. They had to make him believe that they believed his pitiful story, make him believe that things were not that bad for him. It's true that you were ingenious on this one. You were not caught and you fooled the police and here and there. At that point, his ego, his ego had been flattered and little by little he let information slip. That's his attitude. Dutroux finally admitted that he had abducted the two eight-year-old girls. Officer Jean-Pierre Adam was in the interrogation room. 
comme il ne voulait pas, il ne voulait pas dire qu'il les. As he did not say he had killed them, we hoped they would be alive. We had to go fast. It could have been a matter of life or death for them. They could very well have been left there without food or drink. But there was no happy ending. Police were led back into the garden of Dutroux's house in Marcinelle. There, they exhumed the bodies of Julie Lejeune and Melissa Russo. I'll remember all my life the moment that I learned that we had found the bodies of Julie and Melissa. It was disappointing because we always hoped to find them alive. It was a great moment of solitude. Yeah, I put myself in the place of the parents. For them, it is 100,000 times worse. But even for me and my colleagues, who are looking for the right information, well, we are extremely disappointed. I can only imagine what the parents of Lejeune and Rousseau must have felt. I mean, not only have their daughters disappeared, but they're allowed to starve to death and are then unceremoniously shoved in a bin bag and buried in the garden. It is unimaginable cruelty and something that sets Dutroux apart from some other serial killers. Dutroux immediately shifted the blame to his wife, says investigator Michel Borlet. Well, it's not me who took them away. It's not my fault if they died. I was in prison. Yes, that's what he said to me. It's Martin who should have fed them, who did not come to feed them. Along with the girls, police also found the body of Bernard Weinstein. Dutroux also finally confessed to abducting Anne and Effia. It was the news that Effia's father, Jean, had been dreading. Yeah, do not deserve. To begin with, we were not told anything. Then the police started asking questions. If we had any more people, children, if he'd been involved with more children. Finally, Dutroux also admitted that he had Anne and Effia. Dutroux pointed investigators to a property in the Jumet district of Charleroi, owned by Bernard Weinstein. Police exhumed the two bodies. Post-mortem results revealed the pair had been buried alive, says Dr. Elizabeth Yardley. These are the, some of the most horrendous crimes that, that any criminologist will ever come across. But this is somebody who, who just wouldn't have felt bad about his victims at all. He has no sense of, of connection to them or, or empathy with them. But Dutroux's crimes were infinitely more complicated than his horrific actions against the six girls. It was believed that Dutroux's numerous criminal connections were part of something larger. There was also an investigation into the police itself. Why had Dutroux been released so early from prison after his first conviction? And how had the initial investigation of his house in Martinelle been handled so poorly? No conclusive evidence was ever brought forth, but the Belgian public was outraged. It came to a head when one of the lead investigators, Jean-Marc Connerat, was removed from the case. He had become a local hero, having rescued the two surviving girls. Widespread protests broke out across the country, says Georges Wercano. It's as if something falls on your head and you say to yourself, but how did we not see it? How did we not see it happen? Those events deeply shook society. 
You wondered what we're going to build tomorrow on. It would take seven years before Dutroux, Martine, and their accomplice Michel Luliev were finally taken to trial. It was set to begin on March 1st, 2004, nearly eight years after the bodies of four girls had been found. By the time the trial arrived, the story had become one of the biggest controversies in Belgian history. We lived and, and get, went to sleep with this trial. It, it was like an, uh, an addiction. There were so many pages in the newspaper, so many hours on, on television. The prosecution had brought over 200 charges against Dutroux and his accomplices. There was the kidnapping, the abduction, rape and murder of young girls. So if you multiply that by four or five, so there were roughly 235, 255 charges attributable to him. The trial began at the Arlon Assize court in southeast Belgium. Dutroux pleaded guilty to the murder of his accomplice Bernard Weinstein, but he denied four of the kidnappings and two of the murders. For the latter, he continued to shift the blame to Martine, say investigator Michel Bourlet and investigative reporter Georges Warcano. He continued to deny kidnapping Julian Melissa, and he also denied the fact that he had killed Anne and Effia. But the most important thing with regards to the kidnapping of Julian Melissa, he said, the death of Julie and Melissa is not my fault. I was in prison. He said one was already deceased and the other practically dead. He tried, he said. That's what he said, to save her, but he could not do it. He could not do it, so he buried them. As the prosecution began to make its case, the most gruesome details of Dutroux's crimes were laid bare. Some of the girls' family members were present and were horrified. They asked about the photos, how they had been found. Photos had been taken, and I left the courthouse. I did not look at those photos. They were too horrible. Sabine Dardenne, now aged 21, gave a harrowing testimony. She described how Dutroux had repeatedly raped her during the 80 days she was held prisoner inside the dungeon. But Dutroux had his own testimony planned. For 14 weeks, he used the courtroom as his stage. Investigative journalist Douglas DeConnick says he was trying to get the jury and audience to relate to him. I start to understand him better just by hearing him talking in direct. For example, one of the moments I, I never forget was uh, the airco didn't work anymore. It was just terribly hot in, in, in that courtroom. And there were, there were some people saying, we cannot go through with this. Uh, we, should, we should stop today and uh, wait until the plumber has arrived. And then suddenly Mark Dutroux knocked on his glass and said, uh, I can fix it. And he started exp a whole explanation about what was wrong with the, with the system and how to, how to fix it. And he just had to be released from his box and he would do it. 
Mark Dutroux is a textbook psychopath, in my opinion. And when we look at psychopathy, these are people who are not as emotionally complex as the rest of us. They don't have that same depth of feeling. Uh, they lack a conscience. They, they operate pretty much like, like robots. So they are able to, to kind of live in the present, to just simply follow their own wants and desires. But I think one important thing to remember about psychopaths is they're not mentally ill. They are rational, they're aware of what they're doing, their actions are the result of choice. Meanwhile, Michelle Martin remained a mystery, her motives unknown. She was either a silent witness or accomplice to her husband's heinous crimes. Michelle Martin. This Michelle Martin, she's a total riddle because she's different. She's not like Dutroux. I think if she had not met Dutroux, she might not have done what she did. And here she also tried to explain. She regretted it. But it's so strange that as an explanation, she was going to feed the dog. And in the house, the kids were downstairs, yet she did not go to them. How can people live with themselves? It's not them who created the horror, but the fact that they can live alongside it. Detrue's defense changed constantly. Sometimes his lawyers tried to plea insanity. Other times, they argued he was part of a Europe-wide pedophile network and was just part of the trafficking. It was very weird because uh, Mark Dutroux had changed his lawyers on several occasions, and now he showed up with uh, four lawyers, with each a different defense line. There was one saying he's a, he's a psychopath, don't listen to all these stories about networks, or criminal organization behind him, no, it's him alone. And there was this other lawyer saying he's part of a big network, he's just... Uh, the guy who kidnaps girls, brings them to, to sex parties and um, cleans up the mess. But the jury finally came to their own conclusion on June 17, 2004. They found Marc Dutroux guilty. Well, there was not much suspense because you could feel how, no matter how the jury was critical towards the official story, it was clear that they would condemn Marc Dutroux for every, every accusation. Dutroux was given the maximum life sentence. Martine received 30 years in prison. And Michel Luliev received 25 years. But despite the trial lasting over four months and taking eight years to come together, many questions were left unanswered. For example, the exact locations, as well as Julia and Melissa, as Anna and Ify, we to their parents, until today, they don't know where it happened. And it's crucial because if you want to, 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 to determine responsibilities, to, to know what, what exactly happened, that's what, what these parents is promised, what they absolutely want, just a convincing explanation of what happened, they never got that. I was hoping for more justice so that we'd know who we were dealing with. And also, what happened to Effia? How was she murdered? And that we still don't know. We do not know the details. So we have never found out how she died. The entire country was affected by Dutroux's crimes. Many people believe that his crimes spread further and wider, and there were other accomplices involved leaving some with a feeling that justice had not been served. Unfortunately, 
Dutroux is the one thing that Belgium would not want to be remembered for. In the years between 1996 and 98, one third of the Belgian people whose name was Dutroux asked to change their name. It is a commentary on how deeply affected the country was by this lone wolf. Well, some of the things that Mark Dutroux did were incredibly depraved, and, and he didn't seem to have any any bad feelings about that. He he completely lacked any empathy for his victims. He treated his victims essentially as, as commodities, as items to, to use and discard when, when he was fed up with them. Ultimately, it is his victims' families that bear the burden of his actions. This is the reason that, yeah. We did not get any answers, and we started our own investigation. We examined dossiers ourselves. We found out some things, but much more is still unclear. The fact that uh, this was a case of child abduction, um, this was a case where um, the, the violence used against children was so so evident, so so uncommon that it was hard to believe that this guy not only was released from prison after only a few years, but managed to find a way to start immediately again with um, uh, kidnapping girls, uh, buying houses. Um, and he was, he was like, uh, everything that could be worse was worse. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks goes out to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. We'd love if you could leave us a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... A police officer has gone missing in South London. In April 2016, an official missing persons report was launched for P.C. Gordon Semple. What they didn't expect was to find him dead and rotting in someone else's apartment. And the person who did it wasn't denying what happened. He said, I've killed a police officer. Um, Satan uh, told me to do it. I promised Satan that I would kill at the first opportunity. 